If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Since the beginning of chapter 11, the events that we've been looking at have occurred during what we call the Passion Week, the week in which Jesus was arrested, put on trial, and crucified. Though those events happen later in the week, we've been looking at what happens at the beginning of the week, a week that opens with Jesus entering Jerusalem. Uh, At the beginning of the sermon, dealing with the first part of chapter 11, I spoke about the importance of context. Uh, As I said earlier, you can't simply take a verse or a passage out of context and make it mean what you want. But this is something that Christians do, something that non-Christians do, and sadly it's something that those who formerly were Christians have done and left the faith. And it's something we must carefully avoid. Without considering the context, as we've gone through Mark, we've seen that you will come with a rather skewed view of what Mark is saying. So, for example, when we read about Jesus entering in Jerusalem, we have a real tendency to sort of be anachronistic and project back and think, People are saying, Hosanna, here comes the one who is going to die for our sins and redeem us and give us salvation. The reality is they thought he was a political liberator, something that had happened two centuries before when Judas Maccabeus came into Jerusalem after he defeated the Greeks. They thought, this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to defeat the Romans. Like the disciples who in many ways were not that different from Jesus' opponents. That is, they didn't understand who he was. They failed to recognize his unique character. They failed to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. They failed to see Jesus within the context of the Old Testament. They had their own vision of what his ministry would bring. When we read, this happens the next day on Monday, that Jesus comes to a fig tree that has leaves but no fruit, but it's not the season for fruit. One should not realistically expect fruit, and yet Jesus curses the tree. And we might see this as, well, boy, this guy can't control his temper, he's petulant, he's petty, Um, or he's simply showing off. Look at the power I have, I can curse, because the tree, in fact, does wither up and die. After this, Jesus goes to the temple, and he cleanses the temple. Uh, And we might think, oh, what he's doing is, he's saying business doesn't belong in worship. For modern day, business and church don't go together. You shouldn't do business at church. You shouldn't do business at the temple. The reality is, if you look at the context, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple are in fact mirror images. Jesus is trying to tell us something. So the next day, as they went along, they saw that the fig tree was withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Again, what Jesus says about faith can be taken out of context. If you have faith, you can have anything that you want. But in fact, Jesus is speaking about this mountain. And what mountain is that? 
where the temple is, the temple that he had just cleansed. At this point, some of you may be thinking, Damon, we've heard this before. Why are you bringing it up again today? Because what we are going to see today in the Lord willing next Sunday in Mark chapter 13 has been greatly misunderstood because it's been looked at out of context. Some of the verses I think will be familiar to you, but in the wrong way. That is, you, rem- you remember the verse, but the way we've been taught is something that is taken out of context. So, let's begin in the first two verses here of Mark chapter 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Things to note. It's still Tuesday. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple, but now it's Tuesday. Um, By the way, the cleansing of the temple on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. That is, people were doing a shortcut through the temple area and Jesus would not allow it. The last incident in chapter 12 is also in the temple area. It is the widow who is giving her offering. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now Jesus is leaving the temple area, and we'll see in a few verses, we'll actually go outside the city and be on the Mount of Olives. And one of the disciples says, Rabbi, look at this. Teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. The comment is not inappropriate briefly about the temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. And after the exile, the Jews began to build a second temple. The second temple was nothing like the first. It was not as imposing or beautiful. It was desecrated in the year 168 BC by Antiochus Epiphanes. It was cleansed and rededicated by Judas Maccabeus, the one who came into the city of Jerusalem. When the Romans conquered Palestine in the first century, Pompey entered the temple, but he didn't destroy it. His successor took all the valuable uh, instruments and uh, vessels out of it. But they set up a vassal king, a client king, and this was Herod. And Herod the Great was a great builder. He was building things all over Palestine. And one of the things that he did was to rebuild the temple around the existing Second temple. By the way, uh, one could reasonably call this the third temple because it was so massively different. Uh, But Jews were like, no, no, it was a continuation of the second temple. So you have the first temple and the second temple. The project began in 19 BC, the time of Jesus. This is about 30 to 33 AD. It's still not finished. And in fact, they will keep working on the temple until right before it is destroyed in 70 AD. It was a magnificent complex of buildings. 
the disciple mentions two things. The first are the massive stones. How massive, how big were these stones? Well, some of them weighed over a hundred tons. That's a lot, okay? The largest measured 45 by 11 feet by 16 and a half feet and weighed about 600 tons. We have no idea how they did this. No cement was used. It's what is known as dry construction. The stones were simply put on top of each other and it, the stones were massive and it's a natural reaction when you see these stones to say what massive stones. The magnificent building, as I said, the complex was huge. It would take several sermons for me to describe it. Uh, Herod's plan was, in fact, to build this giant platform to almost make an artificial mountain on top of Mount Zion. The Temple Mount was supposed to be 1,600 feet by 900 feet, nine stories high, with walls that were 16 feet thick. Much had been accomplished by the time Jesus and his disciples see the temple. It had been said that it was one of the most beautiful buildings in the world at that time, and certainly the largest and most imposing structure for hundreds of miles in any direction. I'll only mention one thing in particular. The, the main temple, the temple itself, was surrounded by marble columns which supported a gold roof. We're not quite sure if it's just around the outside that it looked like a crown or if the whole roof itself was gold, but it's shown from a distance you could see this magnificent temple. And it's no wonder that the disciples point this out to Jesus. Obviously, he's seen the temple before, but they're just very proud of this, this complex. Well, in light of this, Jesus makes a prophetic statement. Do you see all of these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Of all the things we've heard thus far in the week of passion, this is by far the most stunning. And I'm sure it's not what the disciples expected to hear. Certainly not what they wanted to hear. So now they ask him two questions. And verses 3 and 4 are the key to understanding chapter 13. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, that is, they've come out of Jerusalem, they're on the mountain that overlooks the temple, the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately, tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So Jesus and his disciples have left the temple area, but now they're looking at the temple. They have a great view of the temple from the Mount of Olives. And two sets of brothers come and ask him a pair of questions. You have James and John, Peter and Andrew. But they're mentioned as Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So only the second time that we read about Andrew after his being called to be a disciple. And their questions are this. Tell us when will these things happen? Secondly, what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? I cannot stress enough that these are the questions the disciples ask, and these are the questions that Jesus answered. Okay? They're not asking about the end of the world. They're not asking about the second coming. They have no clue about the second coming. 
They're asking about what Jesus said about the temple. To think that they were asking about the second coming is for us to anachronistically project back what we know, what they in fact did not know. What they know is Jesus said, listen, great buildings, magnificent, it's all going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on the other. Now Jesus begins to answer their questions. And the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse number five, is Jesus answering their questions. Verse five, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. By the way, seemingly a strange way to begin to answer their questions, I think. Verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So I said, I find it interesting that Jesus begins to answer the question, when are these things going to happen? And he's like, yeah, be careful. Watch out that no one deceives you. Rather than giving a timeline or mentioning the signs that will happen before this event, he tells them to watch out that no one deceives you. The warning is followed by telling them not to be alarmed when they hear about various calamities. Wars, rumors of wars, uh, Nations rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. And remember, uh, they didn't have the internet back then. And so when they would hear about a war, oftentimes the war might almost be over by the time they heard about it. Or there might be an earthquake on the other side of the Mediterranean, and it would be weeks, if not months, before they heard. And when they would hear these things, the natural tendency is to think, oh, that must mean something else is going to happen. Something bad is going to happen. And in this context, oh, does that mean it's the temple is about to be destroyed? All these bad things are happening, therefore the temple will be destroyed. The disciples of Jesus, and that includes us, must learn patience. False teachers false Christ, frightening rumors, natural disasters, all of these tempt us to panic, to think that this is the end. We must resist that temptation. And Jesus begins his answer by telling them to resist the temptation to panic, to think that it's all over. In fact, Jesus said, these are the beginning of birth pains. So woman goes into labor, that is the beginning, okay? They are not to panic. It's not the end, it is the beginning that points to something that is going to happen. 
It is not to say that false teachers, wars or rumors of wars, earthquakes, disasters don't have significance. They do. But we should not give them more significance than in fact they do. Then Jesus warns them about persecution in verse number 9. You must be on your guard, he says again. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Uh, Zib read us a passage today from Acts 5 in which this is what happened to Peter and John when they're brought before the Sanhedrin. But Jesus warns them, persecution is in the cards. That's what's coming, okay? After I leave, there in fact will be persecution. But the gospel will spread. And verse number 10 is wonderful. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Regarding persecution, in verse number 11, they're told that they need not be worried or wonder about what they're going to say. Uh, Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. I would remind you, this is spoken to the disciples and not to us. I think we should take care if we think that someone who preaches, like, I don't need to prepare. I'm just going to get up and the Spirit is going to speak through me. It's not spoken to us. Jesus is speaking to his disciples of the persecution that is to come. Without question, you can prepare all you want, but it is the Spirit who guides by his grace and directs the one who is speaking. Um, I have been amazed over the years that I have prepared very carefully and then will say something that is not in my notes and someone will say afterwards, I really appreciate what you said. I'm like, well, you know, that actually wasn't in my notes. It sort of came to me at the time. Yes, the Spirit does work through us, but we should not use that as an excuse to be lazy and say, I will not prepare. And then the last two verses, 12 and 13, um, it's just darkness that brother uh, will betray brother to death, uh, father as child, children will rebel and put them against their parents and put them to death. And then verse 13, all men will hate you because of me. What I get out of verse number 12 is, oh, I know where persecution is. It's like, Damon, give me a list of the people you think who are going to persecute you. And I think that list doesn't start with family, does it? Doesn't start with family. Brother against brother, father against child, children against parents. Family is the bedrock of any society. And we would not expect that persecution would come from our own family. But Jesus warns his disciples that in, that in fact is going to happen. And then the, you know, the people on your list, yeah, that's going to happen. All men will hate you because of me. These verses that we've looked at, 5 through 13, are actually a preparation for the answer Jesus is going to give about the temple. But you may have noticed I didn't read all of verse number 13, did I? It's one thing we must address at the end of verse 13. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. This needs to be understood in its proper context. Jesus is speaking to his disciples within the specific context of the coming persecution. 
which will precede the destruction of the temple. Like rumors of wars and earthquakes, persecution does not mean that the end is near or that it has come. And so we're to be faithful. We can't say, man, I've just got to hold on to the end. We don't know where the end is. By God's grace, we need to remain faithful. We need to stand firm. Now, verses 14 through 23, Jesus' answer continues. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be, be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Jesus now gives us some specifics, and actually just sort of one thing specifically, and that is the abomination that causes desolation. This is an expression that is taken from the book of uh, Daniel. Daniel, it appears three times, chapter 9, 12, uh, 11, and 12. Um, let me just read the one from chapter 11, verse 31. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. What does this mean, the abomination that causes desolation? By the way, I find it interesting. I think the readers knew what it meant. It says, let the reader understand. I think they knew what it meant. Not so sure that we have a clear picture. It is an an appalling sacrilege. It's an unbelievable, unbelievable sacrilege. It is an abomination that is so detestable, it causes the temple to be abandoned by God, by the people of God, and it provokes its destruction. Jesus warns that there will be an act of profaning, so appalling that the temple will be rejected by God as the place of his glory. Because you remember Solomon built the temple, like the tabernacle, it was to represent the presence of God. But something so appalling is going to happen as to cause it to be abandoned. So what, what could be appalling, so appalling, that God would in fact abandon the temple and allow it to be destroyed? We're not sure, it's not really clear. It has been suggested that it does not refer to the Romans coming, because by that time the temple, uh, I would say, has already seen the abomination of desolation. It is about a person who has taken a place that is not his but God, that somehow someone has set himself up as God. And I would argue that this happened before Mark wrote this, and that's why he says, let the reader understand. 
you all know what I'm talking about. And apparently they did. In any case, when this happened, the people of God should say, that's the sign, we're out of here. We need to go to the mountains, and if you're on top, if you're on the roof, don't go, don't go in the house, just leave. If you're in the field, don't go back to get your cloak, leave. This is the sign that the destruction is near. Just a side note, and this is just my opinion. I'm intrigued by the notion that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, was martyred in 62 AD, probably about the time that the Gospel of Mark was written. He was taken by the religious leaders to the top of the temple, to the pinnacle. I mean, that they would even think of doing this is bizarre. But they took him up there and threw him down. He didn't die as a result, which is amazing. So they stoned him to death to finish the job. Um, Could this be the profaning of the temple? The abomination that leads to desolation? We don't know. But the readers did. And the warning is given, you know, when you see this happen, you need to leave. You need to leave. And I don't know if you notice this, but Jesus said, you know, how dreadful it will be. Pray it doesn't happen in winter. Um, we might say, Jesus, don't you know when this is going to happen? We'll come to this next Sunday, a very familiar verse, where Jesus says, not even the Son of Man knows when this will happen. And everyone's like, oh, that's the second coming, that Jesus didn't know when he was going to come back. No, no, it's talking about this. Jesus knows it will happen within a generation, but when it will happen, he doesn't know. And he says, boy, if women are pregnant, boy, it's going to be tough. Women who are nursing, if it's winter, this is going to be brutal. And he says, there will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now. If God didn't cut those days short, no one would survive. Here Jesus gives specific instructions. Don't hesitate, leave. Leave, flee. When you see this happening, you should leave. And there's nothing wrong with running away. Uh, William Perkins, in his uh, essay on vocation, talks about should pastors leave during the time of plague or should they stay? Does a pastor, you know, when a plague comes, does a pastor have to stay? And he says, no, you don't. And here would say, you know, leave. You should flee. You shouldn't say, well, the Lord will take care of us. Jesus says, you need to leave. It will be a difficult time. Verse number 19 causes some problems for some. Because it talks about the fact that apparently this is going to be the worst thing that has ever happened since God created the world. And it will never be equaled again. To which people would say, what about the Holocaust? What about the Holocaust? Six million Jews died. We think that when the temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed, a million Jews were killed. I mean, it was a bloody time. But the worst... You know, whenever you say something is the worst, it it sort of raises eyebrows. Some have suggested that Jesus is using hyperbole, 
that is extreme exaggeration. Not opposed to that, but stop to think a minute. The destruction of the temple marked the end of a particular relationship between God and the Jews. It meant that the presence of God was no longer among the Jews. This is not a question of statistics. How many people died? How many were sold into slavery? It's much more than that. This is God withdrawing himself from the Jews. That which represented his presence among the people would be destroyed. It's not simply a physical act. There's something very spiritual that's happening here. There's not going to ever be anything like that again. When God withdraws in such a dramatic way, million people die, and that's horrible. The temple is destroyed, that's a great loss. But it is God's withdrawal that is, there's been nothing like it. There will not be anything like it again. Then verses 21 and 23. Um, At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. Now, some people might think, oh, Jesus is repeating what he said in verses 5 and 6. If you look at verses 5 and 6, you know, it's like, watch out that no one deceives you, that there will be many Christs and all that. No, he's not repeating himself. Here, or first of all, in verses 5 and 6, he's talking about people, uh, false prophets leading people astray. Here, he's talking about false prophets saying, stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem, you'll be safe, you'll be okay. And they may even do signs and miracles. I don't know if I should believe you. And then they do some type of sleight of hand or whatever, like, oh, well, I guess you know what you're talking about. We're going to stay in the city. But these are false prophets and false Christs. They claim to be the Christ and they give people bad advice and say, don't flee, don't run away. By the way, I've not talked a great deal about 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, but it it actually was the culmination of a four-year war. And at one point, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and it looked like they were about to come in But then there was uh, a report that there was a rebellion in Egypt. So all the legions packed up and left and went to Egypt. And the Jews were like, yes. You know, we knew we could stand against them. Um, And it may be that during this time, the false prophets were like, see, told you not to leave. Uh, But the Romans came back and totally destroyed the city. And then verse 23, which will be, Lord willing, our jumping off point next week. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. I think my response is, you haven't told us anything. Uh, You've talked about the abomination of desolation, but you've been warning us, but you really haven't told us anything. Well, he's not finished. And the Lord willing, we'll pick it up next week. This is a chapter that has been much misunderstood. We don't usually deal with grammar or Greek, above my pay grade a bit. But in this chapter, 
there are 19 imperatives, 19 commands, like be on your guard, which happens twice. We have command after command after command, which means that Mark chapter 13 is not about giving us signs of, or esoteric information. When you see this and this and this, you know, when everything, when the planets align, you know, give us all this stuff, then you know that the temple is about to be destroyed. Um, in fact, Jesus is very vague about what he wants from his disciples, and I think us by extension, is that we would trust him, we would obey him in times of difficulty, in times of upheaval, in times of distress, we are to be patient. And it may be a difficult time, um, certainly not as bad as anything that's ever happened before, but a time of distress. Um, yeah, we are to be patient and we are to trust the Lord. And so chapter 13, which for many people, it's called by some the, the little apocalypse, it's telling about the end. Um, it's like, yeah, I, that's, I, that's not what's happening. Jesus is warning his people, his disciples specifically here, that hard days are coming. Really hard days are coming. Okay? But stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. That's what chapter 13 is about. And somehow that's not exciting enough for us. So it's like, ooh, maybe it's going to give us some indication of when the end of the world is going to happen. Yeah, that's not what's going on. Jesus is calling his disciples and us as his disciples to be faithful and to stand firm. Let's pray together. Our Father, it seems that we generally want to know things that we don't need to know, and we ignore the things that we should know and obey. Like the disciples, we want to know the signs that something is going to happen. And Jesus instead speaks warnings that we not be deceived, that we not lose heart, that we not be led astray, but by your grace stand firm. I thank you for the Gospel of Mark and the way in which it was written, that we can have an understanding of how things fit together, that Mark didn't simply put things together haphazardly, but he's trying to give us the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and hear the week of his passion, of his death, to hear him speaking words of encouragement to his disciples. In a few days he will be crucified, but now he warns, he encourages, he tells his disciples not to give in to the temptation to panic, but to be obedient and to stand firm. I thank you for this time together, the beginning of a new week. 
in a week in which Tom will travel to be with Anne's family, the funeral of friend. Jeff Fetzer is going to have surgery. Other things are going to happen that we don't know about. Remind us that you're always there with us every step of the way. And you are because you love us. Not because you have to. Not because you are able to. But you're with us because you love us. We thank you that we could gather to worship and ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name.